Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is an RNZ podcast. We're going to start today's episode with a quote from the Wired Upper Times Age newspaper. It was published in August 1914, just a few days after Britain declared war on Germany. The war spirit of a nation is something to marvel at. In the stress and strife of war, even the most commonplace man will often raise to heights he would not have dreamed of in times of peace. Britain is in trouble, and we are the sons of Britain. Most people don't talk about war in such positive terms today. This conflict really changed attitudes. Before the First World War, battles could be nasty, but at least they were usually short and sharp. 20th century technology, however, changed all of that. Now soldiers had to spend months living and dying in trenches, slogging through mud, dodging bullets, gas and artillery. That whole idea of war uplifting and empowering people was crushed by the bitter reality of 20th century warfare. Kuli Madam McLaughlin Tenei. Call William Ray Tenei. No my Heidi Mai, this is the Aotearoa History Show. We range ourselves without fear beside Britain. Where she goes, we go. Where she stands, we stand. The New Zealander Hillary has succeeded in conquering Mount Everest. New Zealand wins from On June 28, 1914, a Serbian nationalist assassinated the heir to the throne of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It was the trigger for a war which had been brewing for decades between the major powers of Europe. On one side you had the Allies, dominated by the French Empire, the British Empire and the Russian Empire. On the other side was the Central Powers, the German Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire. But only two of those empires were left standing once this war was over. This conflict totally changed the global balance of power. When the war broke out, Kiwis were falling over themselves to go fight for king and country. 14,000 volunteers swarmed into recruiting offices. These were men from all walks of life. Labourers, farmers, students, teachers, clerks, miners. Around 8,500 of these men formed Aotearoa's first major contribution to the war, the main body of the New Zealand Expeditionary Force. But to start with, Māori soldiers were blocked from sailing overseas. The British imperial authorities didn't want to use indigenous troops in combat, partly because they didn't want to have to treat them equally to white soldiers, and partly because they were paranoid indigenous troops might turn on them. But many Māori were determined their people should serve overseas. The most vocal were members of the Young Māori Party, men like Apirana Ngata and Maui Pumari. These Tani saw the war as part duty, part opportunity. 
on one hand, they genuinely supported the British crown and considered it the duty of Māori men to fight for the empire. But on the other hand, they hoped fighting for Britain might make Pākehā leaders see Māori more positively. Eventually, the authorities backed down and sent a Māori contingent to the front line. This unit also included Pacific Islanders from the Cook Islands and Niue. But while Māori and Pākehā soldiers typically got along well, they returned to very different lives. For example, after the war, about 10,000 Pākehā soldiers who applied for land got helped onto farms, while few Māori veterans got those grants, as it was assumed they had tribal land to return to. The overwhelming majority of Māori volunteers came from iwi who had already fought alongside the Crown in the New Zealand wars, like Te Arawa and Ngāti Piro. But not all Māori were on board with the idea that they should fight, particularly iwi like Waikato and Tuhoi, who had fought against the Crown. The Māori king's cousin, Te Puya Herangi, led Kingitanga's opposition to Māori participation in the conflict. She said... They tell us to fight for King and country. Well, that's all right. We've got a king, but we haven't got a country. That's been taken off us. Let them give us back our land, and maybe we'll think about it again. Another prominent anti-war activist was the Tuhoi prophet Rua Kenana, who claimed to be the successor of Te Koti. There's still a popular song today about Rua's opposition to the war. There were also Pākehā who opposed the war. Sometimes these were religious pacifists, other times they were labour activists. But most New Zealanders strongly supported the war. The first major deployment of Kiwi troops was with the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, the ANZACs. These troops were quickly swept up into the Dardanelles campaign and the battle for Gallipoli. Today, Gallipoli is remembered as a horrific disaster. But it wasn't such a terrible idea in theory. So when the war began, Germany launched a massive attack on Belgium and France, which it hoped would end the war quickly. This attack started as a huge success, but in a few months the fighting turned into a stalemate. Troops ended up stuck in lines of trenches, which stretched more than 700 kilometres from the Swiss border to the North Sea. This was the Western Front, and it stayed virtually unmoving for most of the war. A big part of the problem was that new technologies like machine guns, barbed wire, efficient artillery and railways made it much easier to defend territory than attack it. Both sides tried massive frontal assaults, but they'd hardly ever broke through. So a faction of the British leadership, including Winston Churchill, came up with plans to bypass this meat grinder. The idea was for a Royal Naval Squadron to sail through the Dardanelles. It's a small strait of ocean which connects the Mediterranean Sea from the Sea of Marmara. Then they could bombard the Ottoman Empire's capital at Constantinople, which is now known as Istanbul. 
The Ottoman Turks were seen as the weak link in the Central Powers. Taking them out would seriously undermine the Germans. But this plan quickly ran into problems. The Dardanelles was packed with mines, and when the British sent out minesweeping boats, they came under fire from artillery up on the coast. So the Allies decided they had to send troops on shore to take out those guns. This is where the disaster began. On the 25th of April, 1915, a combined force of British, French, Canadian, New Zealand, Australian and Indian troops launched an assault on the Gallipoli Peninsula. But the Allies had lost the element of surprise. Turkish forces held the high ground and the first contingents of the Anzac forces were hit hard as they landed on the beaches. Eventually, the Anzacs got a toehold on the steep hills along the coast, but every time they tried to push inland, they had to traverse a maze of ravines and gullies and faced an impenetrable wall of machine guns, artillery and barbed wire. The fighting in Gallipoli bogged down just like it had on the Western Front. Trench warfare. Most of the letters soldiers sent home from Gallipoli were full of optimism and bravery. Here's one from Jim Ferris, who was part of the Māori contingent which landed in Gallipoli in July 1915. It was a great time for the Māoris. They simply had the time of their lives. A savage burst of a haka, a wild Māori roar, and then their bayonets. The thing is, letters like that had to make it through military censors. The uncensored diaries of people like military surgeon Percival Fenwick give very different impressions of the conflict. I simply curse the arrant stupidity of this landing. If a thousandth part of this carelessness of human life was done in civil life, the government would foam with indignation. Now all is covered with the glib remark, military expediency. Damn military expediency, say I. The same guy also wrote about how hard it was just being in Gallipoli every day. There was disease, lice, there was a lack of decent food and water, and just non-stop stress. The sight of so many men being hit is very saddening, and I don't get used to it at all. It would be a huge relief to get hit oneself. I believe we are all suffering from nerve strain. Nerve strain. Some people also called it shell shock. Today, we call it post-traumatic stress disorder. It affected many soldiers for their entire lives. The Gallipoli campaign lasted eight months before the Allies finally decided to withdraw. In those eight months, nearly 2,800 New Zealanders died. In total, the campaign cost the Allies more than 140,000 dead and wounded, and more than 250,000 on the Turkish side. Back home in Aotearoa, the news was met with complete horror. The censors did their best to hide the full scale of the suffering, but the numbers of dead and injured were hard to conceal. A reporter for the New Zealand Herald overheard a scrap of conversation in a crowd of people waiting for a trainload of wounded men to arrive in Auckland. One person said, 
Oh, well, I hope these people will cheer today. If they never cheer again in their lives. The other replied, Do you? I hope they don't. It'll be too sad for cheering. New Zealanders were still determined to keep fighting. But the original enthusiasm waned, and the supply of volunteers started to dry up. The government used all kinds of methods to boost recruitment. They tracked down the address of every man who was the right age to fight, then got local committees to knock on the doors of those who hadn't signed up. Men working in vital industries had to wear special badges to avoid being harassed in the streets. By mid-1916, the government had decided the only solution was compulsory conscription. Any eligible men who refused to fight faced harsh treatment. 286 of these men were imprisoned and a handful were sent to the front lines anyway, where they were beaten and starved on the order of military authorities. After the war ended, the government also stripped some citizenship rights from more than 2,000 men who avoided conscription. They were banned from voting or working in government for 10 years. There was also a strong backlash against Māori who opposed conscription when this was eventually imposed on Waikato iwi. Dozens of Kingitanga followers were jailed, including King Tirata's 16-year-old brother, Tirauanganga. The Tuhoi prophet Ruakenana also opposed the war. Armed police raided his marae, killed two people and took Rua off in chains on trumped-up charges. The demand to send men overseas also forced traditionally male-dominated workplaces to hire more women to fill the gaps. During the war years, the number of women in the public service more than doubled. But we should say these roles were temporary. Once the war ended, most women were forced to resign to make way for the returning servicemen. During the war, though, some women served overseas as doctors, dentists and ambulance drivers. Around 550 served as nurses. In the middle of the Gallipoli campaign, a Christchurch woman called Etty Rout defied official objections and led a group of Kiwi volunteers over to Egypt to take care of wounded soldiers. She convinced the authorities to hand out condoms to soldiers to block the spread of STIs. That was a small but significant step towards people becoming more accepting of contraceptives. Many women also volunteered their time back home, writing letters to soldiers, working in hospitals and fundraising. In 1915, the Otago and Southland Women's Patriotic Association knitted 3,800 balaclavas and 7,400 pairs of socks. In many ways, the war was good for New Zealand's economy. The British government bought New Zealand's entire output of frozen meat for most of the war. They also bought wool, hides and dairy products. The New Zealand government also stepped up the development of export infrastructure. And all this stuff was a big boost for lots of local farms and factories. There were some economic downsides, though. It was very hard to get a loan unless your business was linked to the war effort. But of course... Any hardship at home paled in comparison to the suffering of the soldiers. Today, when we think about Kiwi troops in World War I, we mostly think about Gallipoli. But the majority of our casualties came later on in the war, when our men were redeployed to the Western Front in Europe in 1916. 
Kiwi troops fought in many of the Western Front's most horrific battles. The Somme, Messines, Passchendaele. Like at Passchendaele alone, more than 800 Kiwis died in a single day. That's the greatest loss of life we've ever suffered in just one day. 60% of the men we sent overseas became casualties. 18,000 dead, another 40,000 wounded. The war finally ended on the 11th of November 1918, when Germany agreed to an armistice. On the face of it, this looked like a huge victory for the British Empire and New Zealand. Britain's opponents in Europe were smashed and its status as a global superpower had been secured. But this was only skin deep. The financial and human costs of the Great War crippled the empire and the fallout from German defeat contributed to another, even more horrific conflict. The Second World War. In the meantime, the world had another horror to face. In late 1917, a new and incredibly deadly mutation of influenza appeared. H1N1. It's commonly known as Spanish flu, but it didn't actually start in Spain. That's just the first place where the news of its spread wasn't suppressed by wartime censors. The huge movements of troops towards the end of the war spread the virus all over the world. All up, it took the lives of somewhere between 50 and 100 million people. That's more than both world wars combined. In New Zealand, more than 8,000 people died. Māori were hit particularly hard. Their death rate was seven times higher than Pākehā. Māori had less immunity to influenza because they hadn't been exposed to it until Pākehā arrived, and they didn't really have access to the mainstream health system. Nationwide health authorities were overwhelmed. For starters, there was no cure, and some attempts to treat people actually ended up spreading the disease further. But the cost of the flu was even worse in Samoa. Western Samoa had been a German colony, but Kiwi troops took control of the islands early on in the war. After the war ended, New Zealand authorities failed to maintain a quarantine on the island. Influenza arrived on a trading ship from Auckland and rapidly spread. It wiped out at least 20 to 25% of the Samoan population. That's the highest death rate anywhere in the world. The New Zealand Military Administrator of Samoa, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Logan, refused to help feed sick Samoans and turned down offers of support from doctors in American Samoa. This caused a lot of resentment and resistance to New Zealand rule, and it was the beginning of a long struggle for Samoan independence. Today, lots of Kiwis see the First World War as a foundational moment. The story goes that New Zealand had achieved nationhood. We'd been tested in battle, our soldiers came home seeing themselves as culturally distinct to the British, equal and independent. God, 
There's a famous quote from Orman Burton. He served as a stretcher bearer in Gallipoli. Somewhere between the landing at Anzac and the end of the Battle of the Somme, New Zealand very definitely became a nation. But here's the thing, that quote wasn't said until 50 years after the war ended. Immediately after the war, many New Zealanders actually said the conflict made them feel a closer connection to Britain. Like, here's part of a letter Lance Corporal George Tuck sent to his dad after he was wounded in Gallipoli. We were English soldiers fighting for our English homes and one with all the English born. The idea that New Zealand became a nation in World War I didn't actually become popular until the 1970s. By that time, Kiwis were feeling like Britain had turned its back on them to pursue a closer relationship with Europe. So New Zealand sort of reinterpreted the story of World War I to fit a new, more independent national identity. Also, this idea that New Zealand became a nation on the beaches of Gallipoli ignores the fact that many Māori had already developed a national identity, which had nothing to do with World War I. For some Māori, that war was nowhere near as significant as their experience of the New Zealand wars. Over the years, people have found lots of ways to reinterpret the meaning of the First World War. And one of the most obvious places you can see this is Anzac Day. To start with, this day was a celebration of military service, patriotism and sacrifice. It was a chance to cheer for the heroes and grieve for the dead. But in the 1960s and 70s, Anzac Day got caught up in protests linked to the international peace movement and the Vietnam War. And anti-war protest is still a part of Anzac Day today. In recent years, there's been more recognition of non-New Zealanders who fought at Gallipoli, both our allies from places like India and Europe and also the Turkish troops. The First World War shattered empires. It reshaped the world. We only played a small part in it, but it had a massive impact on how the rest of our history played out. Next episode, we'll continue looking at the aftermath of the war and at how another global crisis triggered the biggest political revolution in our history. The Aotearoa History Show is a 14-part series made possible by the RNZ New Zealand On Air Digital Innovation Fund. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. It's written and produced by William Ray and co-presented by Lee Marama McLaughlin. The sound engineer is William Saunders and it is directed by Duncan Smith. Historical fact-checking by Basil Keane and the Ministry of Culture and Heritage, especially David Green. Archival audio from Nga Taonga Sound and Vision... A video version of the Aotearoa History Show is available online via the RNZ webpage or on YouTube. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.